This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Faith, Works, and Miracles. In the first half, Keith B. McMullen shares his address, Faith and Works in a Secular World. Then in the second half, Mark L. Pace speaks on Faith Still Precedes the Miracle. Education in secular subjects contributes much to the betterment of our world. Secular learning of the highest level blossoms in an atmosphere of virtue, moral responsibility, spiritual truth, and faith. Much is touted today about secular societies. People and nations pride themselves in being secular, in focusing on worldly things, on things that are not regarded as religious or spiritual or sacred. Much of the world today views secularism as vital to a balanced, just, and ordered government. Hence, religious expression is discouraged in public forums. Civil rights are dependent upon the courts and legislative processes. Men and women readily seek solutions and redress through litigious means. In the extreme, society's secularism overlooks the concept of eternal life, places all things in the context of the natural world, and consequently is prone to works without faith. It requires watchfulness and great effort to be men and women of faith in a secular world. When inundated by worldliness, it is the nature of man to first pity, then endure, then embrace. Secularism is inundating people today with just such results. Unchecked by faith in Christ as the Redeemer of mankind, this secular or natural world produces men and women who are proud, obsessed with self, overly competitive, reactionary, fiercely independent, driven by desires, appetites, and worldly acclaim. In general, the natural man is an unredeemed creature, a being who walks in the light of his own fire. Such a one is acclimated to the nature of things about him, taking his cues and bearings from a fallen world. Succinctly said, men that are in a state of nature are without God in the world. Because secularism typically ignores the eternal perspective, it can, in time, lead to unbelief. In the words of Wolfhard Pannenberg, a professor of theology at the University of Munich, quote, A public climate of secularism undermines the confidence of Christians in the truth of what they believe. In a secular milieu, even an elementary knowledge of Christianity dwindles. It is no longer a matter of rejecting Christian teachings. Large numbers of people have not the vaguest knowledge of what those teachings are. The more widespread the ignorance of Christianity, the greater the prejudice against Christianity. The difficulty is exacerbated by the cultural relativizing of the very idea of truth. In the view of many, Christian doctrines are merely opinions that may or may not be affirmed according to individual preference or depending on whether they speak to personally felt needs. The thoroughly secularized social order 
gives rise to a feeling of meaninglessness. Faith in Christ is replaced by faith in man. In public discourse and private thought, the questions of where we came from, where we go when life is over, and what ultimately governs the here and now not only go unaddressed, they are considered irrelevant. This state of unbelief is becoming a calamity of colossal proportions. Heavenly Father knew this would happen. The restoration of the gospel rekindled faith in Jesus Christ as Creator, Savior, and Redeemer. It brought again the correct understanding of life's purposes. In 1831, Heavenly Father's children were told, Wherefore, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven, and gave him commandments, that faith might increase in the earth. Before the foundations of this world were laid, before the orbs of the universe received their place, men and women lived and moved and had their being. The secular thought that life is nothing more than biology denies the fundamental truth, the subconscious awareness residing in the recesses of every living soul, that man was also in the beginning with God. This fact is immutable and irrefutable. Paradisiacal Eden with our first parents, Adam and Eve, came thereafter, that man, through mortal life's experiences and Christ's redemption, might become a complete, fully developed, and perfected being. The ages of the patriarchs, the supernal advent of our Savior and His incomparable atonement in the meridian of time, and the times of restitution of all things which began in 1820, set the framework by which men and women, boys and girls, could once more govern their lives and their surroundings by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. My dear young friends, you stand at the confluence of these world's events. What is past is prologue, and what has been is yet to be. What can happen, what must happen, is that your faith and accompanying works will stem the tide of unbelief. This is your lot in life. This is your sacred duty. Our Master said, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, nothing shall be impossible unto you. President Hinckley reminds us, When all is said and done, the only real wealth of the Church is in the faith of its people. In the onworking of this great cause, increased faith is what we most need. Without it, the work would stagnate. With it, no one can stop its progress. Such faith is more than attitude, more than belief, more than testimony of what one knows or feels. Real faith, the faith spoken of by our beloved prophet, begets righteousness in this life and salvation in the life to come. It is centered in the true and living God and in Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. It is founded on truth, preceded by knowledge, and perfected by works. 
It causes mortals to understand and behave as Heavenly Father's children should. This faith is the first great governing principle which enables us to have power, dominion, and authority over how we think, how we act, what manner of men and women we are. The Apostle James gives us the formula for such faith. What profit is it, he asks, for a man to say he hath faith and hath not works? Yea, a man may say, I will show thee I have faith without works. But I say, Show me thy faith without works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Seest thou how works are wrought with faith, and by works is faith made perfect? We hear much about benchmarks. A benchmark is a standard of excellence or achievement against which similar things are measured or judged. There are four benchmarks that can help each of us know if our personal faith in Christ is being made perfect by our works. These benchmarks are the choices we make, the devotion we exhibit, the obedience we practice, and the service we give. Permit me to explain. First, the benchmark of choice. Latter-day Saints believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. Imagine a young elder whom we will call Bill. He learned this in primary. He believed it then. He believes it now. For some time, however, Bill has been plagued with pornography. He has found its allurements powerful and addictive. After each encounter with this sleazy stuff, Bill has felt sickened, ashamed, and worthless inside. Bill decided, It is time for me to stand up for my faith. He went to that secret place, retrieved the filthy pictures, the vulgar films and literature, and destroyed them. He purged his library of the hard, raucous music and sordid lyrics. He deleted from his computer all references to pornographic sites, installed a protective filter, and placed his computer in a more public place so as to fortify himself against repeating his sin. Bill acknowledged his transgressions before God. He prayed fervently for the strength to repent, to expel this evil from his life. He sought help from his bishop and loved ones. In his extremity, Bill has felt the quiet assurance, My son, you are on the right path. His faith, because of his works, is being affirmed and strengthened. Much remains to be done. There will be fasting, prayer, scripture study, and many tears. A good bishop will provide indispensable help. The faithfulness and prayers of parents and loved ones will provide needed support. Nevertheless, the benchmark shows Bill is beginning to exercise faith unto repentance. He has made the right choice. Second, the benchmark of devotion. Latter-day Saints believe all that God has revealed, 
all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of the ten tribes, that Zion, the New Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent, and that men and women are called of God by prophecy and divine authority to bring this about. True devotion is tied to divine causes set in motion before the foundations of this world. Righteous ancestors enlisted in them and gave their lives to the furtherance of Heavenly Father's purposes. We have been entrusted to carry on, to build upon their consecrated labors. Now a story, one familiar to some of you. In 1856, Robert and Anne Parker, with their four children, embarked from England to join the Saints in Utah. A prophet had spoken, and theirs was the charge to gather to the Great Basin and help build Zion. As members of the MacArthur Handcart Company, each in their family bore a share of the work. Father and mother pulled the heavy cart, Maxie, twelve years of age, pushed, and Martha, ten years old, tended little Arthur, six years of age. Baby Ada, one year old, toddled, was carried, and rode in the cart. Somewhere in Nebraska, little Arthur sat down to rest and fell asleep. A sudden storm arose. The company hurried on and made camp. It was then they discovered that Arthur was not with the other children. Days of searching were in vain. The company had to press on. This was the time for Robert and Ann Parker to act in accordance with their faith. Archer Walters recorded in his diary under July 2, 1856, Brother Parker's little boy was lost, and the father went back to hunt him. As Robert departed, Anne pinned a bright red shawl about his shoulders and said, If you find him dead, wrap him in the shawl to bury him. If you find him alive, you could use this as a flag to signal us. She, with the other children, took up the handcart and struggled on with the company. Robert retraced the miles of forest trail, calling, searching, and praying for their helpless little son. At last, he reached a mail and trading station where he learned that their child had been cared for by a woodsman and his wife. Little Arthur had been ill from exposure and fright, but God had heard the prayers of his loving parents. On the trail each night, Anne and her children kept watch. On the third night, as the rays of the setting sun caught the glimmer of a bright red shawl, this brave mother sank in a pitiful heap in the sand. Completely exhausted, Anne slept for the first time in six long days and nights. God indeed was kind and merciful. Their works had rewarded their devotion and sanctified their faith, and in gladness of heart the saints sang, All is well. Baby Ada, my grandmother, 
grew to womanhood and married my grandfather, Brigham Young McMullen. Now here is the moral. She never allowed her children to forget that she and her family came across the plains with the Daniel D. MacArthur Handcart Company. The story of the Red Shawl became our story. The legacy of their faith became ours as well. And so we all carry on, and great obstacles fade as the dew before the morning sun. About these early saints the benchmark shows. Their works were a hallmark of faith, their devotion a standard for their posterity to live by. Third, the benchmark of obedience. Latter-day Saints believe that through the Atonement of Christ all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Here we imagine a young couple representative of those living in this secular world. David and Michelle knew this article of faith long before they knew each other. Even so, they deal with concerns facing many participating in this broadcast. You see, David and Michelle are in their mid to late twenties. They have known one another for some time. They hang out together. And they are in love. Nevertheless, they are indecisive about marriage and family. Should they postpone marriage until they have completed their schooling? Until they have more money? Until some of their personal ambitions are realized? They also wonder about the escalating trends of divorce, the wars and tumults around the world, and overpopulation. Would their marriage survive? Should they bring children into such a world? Oh, David and Michelle, exercise your faith. Remember, marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Children are an heritage of the Lord. The earth is full. There is enough and to spare. Act upon what you know to be true, and your righteous works will perfect your faith. Your lives will be full and wonderful. Follow the good example of your parents. They could not afford to get married, but they did. They too worried about war and tumult, but they exercised their faith and had you. The demands of marriage and family did not deter their education. It enriched it. As for their personal ambitions, they are completely and happily entwined in the well-being of each other and of you, your brothers and sisters and grandchildren. Life was not easy for your parents. They had to scrimp and save, make do with what they had. They, too, faced questions and circumstances they could not answer. But they knew that the pathway ordained by Almighty God decreed that they move ahead, and you are so much richer because of it. From the stories they have told you over and over again, you know that everything for them has been uphill both ways. But their works have sanctified their faith. 
They are older, to be sure. Their step is not as spry, their manner not as intense, their appearance not something advertisers typically clamor for. But their love for God and for each other reflects deep reverence and adoration. The scars of life have afforded them wisdom, patience, and gratitude. In small but important ways, they have become the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, things they could not see earlier in life. But they obeyed. Exercising their faith, they were sealed in the temple, were blessed with children, and now know the true sources of happiness. The benchmark shows obedience calls forth the blessings of heaven. It did so for your parents, and it will do so for you. Fourth, the benchmark of service. Latter-day Saints believe in God the Eternal Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. We believe that Christ will reign personally upon the earth and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. We know more about the Godhead than all the minds of men have ever conceived, and what we know is true. Furthermore, we know the purposes of deity for this earth and all of its creatures. Because of what we know, and because the Lord has placed upon our shoulders the sacred duty to help bring it to pass, we must not be casual about our Church membership. Some are enticed into being less committed for fear of appearing to be too religious. The view They view the Church as an institution, but not as a kingdom. O oh, youth of the noble birthright, make the work of the Church and Kingdom of God the center of your life. When called to serve, say yes and do your very best. Listen to this charge from the Lord. Wherefore, seek not the things of this world, but seek ye first to build up the kingdom of God and to establish his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In just four days from now, on November 9th, it will be 150 years since the ill-fated Willie Handcart Company pioneers struggled into the Salt Lake Valley. They had waded through much suffering and death. The storms and their weakened condition had claimed many. The rescuers had saved many more. Levi Savage was among those arriving that day. History records his faithful and dogged labors to save the saints and bring them safely to the valley. But his noble service did not begin on the snow-bound plains of Wyoming. This was but another chapter, perhaps the crowning one, in a consecrated life of service. Levi was baptized in June 1846 at 26 years of age. Answering the prophet's call to move west, he notes that we prepared as well as we could for a long journey into a strange land and to us wholly unknown country. We bid adieu to the old homestead and directed our course westward, not knowing the place of destination, 
only we expected to locate somewhere in the western wilds of the Rocky Mountains. On the 16th of July, 1846, he, with other valiant men, responded again to the Prophet's urging, enlisted in the Mormon battalion, and marched approximately 2,000 miles from Council Bluffs, Iowa, to San Diego, California, and then on to Los Angeles. Here they were discharged from government service. Though they knew nothing of the whereabouts of their homes and families, they began their trek to the valley of the Great Salt Lake. The route Levi Savage traveled was an additional 1,300 miles over rugged and hostile terrain, and he finally arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. Here Levi pioneered, fought crickets, married, had a son, and buried his wife some months following the child's birth. Ten months after his wife's death, in the October Conference of 1852, he and several other faithful brethren were called by the Prophet to open a gospel mission to Siam, today's Thailand. This time they journeyed by team and wagon back to Lower California and the Pacific Ocean. In time, they sailed from South San Francisco to Calcutta, bound for their mission to Siam. Levi's journal entry of January 29, 1853, provides us a glimpse into the hearts of these early missionaries. He writes, Our gallant ship, propelled by a gentle breeze, steered her course across the boisterous deep for our places of destination leaving behind us our much-loved native land. Each sought his own place for meditation, and there reflected upon the comforts of his home, the affections of his beloved wife and children or friends. But now he was called to take up his abode in the remote parts of the earth. And for what? For the sake of heaping up gold and silver, or to secure for himself the honors, pomp, and splendor of this world? No, verily no, but in obedience to the commands of the Lord to carry the message of truth and salvation to the benighted and superstitious nations. Soon after, each retired to his cot for rest and repose. But whether asleep or awake, his mind continued to wander upon the realities of the past and the prospects of the future. Following his mission, Levi sailed home by way of Boston, Massachusetts, made his way to his place of birth in Greenfield, Ohio, and noted upon his arrival there, I have now circled the globe. He joined the Willie Hancart Company in Iowa City, Iowa, which began a saga of eternal importance to him, his family, and the entire Church. His works in that epic crowned a life of sacrifice and service. Of these pioneers, the benchmark shows. Their faith and works were a beacon in an unbelieving world, their service a pattern for each of us to follow. We are moved by the words from the clergyman Frederick W. Faber, Faith of our fathers, living still, in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword, 
Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whenever we hear that glorious word. Faith of our fathers, we will strive to win all nations unto thee, and through the truth that comes from God, mankind shall then be truly free. Faith of our fathers, we will love both friend and foe in all our strife, and preach thee too as love knows how by kindly words and virtuous life. Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee till death. I bear you my witness, my dear brothers and sisters. God is in his heavens. His name is Elohim, and he knows all of his children, irrespective of from whence they come or where they dwell. Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, is his beloved Son, the Redeemer of all mankind. Joseph Smith, a young lad, was called by the voice of God and his Holy Son as a prophet, and ensuing from that call, the true Church and Kingdom of God has been restored upon the earth. How blessed we are to know these things! And you, my dear brothers and sisters, stand at the confluence of history. You came from realms of glory. It is your singular privilege to be true to the faith, to press forward in good works. Do what the prophets say. Generations past expect it. Generations present are saved by it. Generations future depend upon it. And the Holy Spirit will guide you every step of your way. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Faith, Works, and Miracles. We've just heard from Keith B. McMullen. After the break, we'll return with Mark L. Pace for Faith Still Precedes the Miracle. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Faith, Works, and Miracles. Next is Mark L. Pace, Sunday School General President for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled Faith Still Precedes the Miracle. My dear brothers and sisters, it's a pleasure and an honor to be with you here today. This is a remarkable institution with a worldwide influence for good, and you certainly make it even better because of your individual contributions. I pay tribute to President Worthen and those who serve with him in guiding this university to fulfill its divine purpose. We thank you for your devoted and remarkable service. Now, last spring, my wife Anne Marie and I visited with President Russell M. Nelson in his office, where he extended to me the calling I currently hold. I asked him, President Nelson, what would you like me to do as the Sunday School President? His reply included the humble request that I encourage an ever increasing use of the Come Follow Me resource by members of the Church. So I share with you that request from the Prophet of God 
and thank you for your personal efforts this year in reading the New Testament. You may not realize this, but by accepting and acting on the prophet's invitation, you are strengthening the Church. How, you might ask. As you study the scriptures throughout the week, you welcome the Holy Ghost into your life. This increased influence of the Holy Ghost builds your faith in the Savior and deepens your conversion. The collective strength of the conversion of each member is, in a very real way, the strength of the Church. So we thank you for strengthening the Church by studying the New Testament this year. I consider this a sacred opportunity to address you today, and I have prayed earnestly to know what the Lord would have me say. The promptings of the Spirit have led me to talk of the importance of acting in faith and to remind you that faith still precedes the miracle. In the Book of Mormon, there is an absolute jewel in Ether chapter 12. Most of the Book of Ether is an account of the history of Jared and his people. Here Moroni describes how the Jaredites were brought to the American continent and became a great civilization with periods of righteousness and prosperity as well as periods of wickedness, war, and apostasy. As the history progresses, Moroni tells of the continuing slight of the Jaredites. They reject the prophets and the blessings of heaven are withdrawn. One prophet in particular, Ether, prophesies great and marvelous things unto the people which they did not believe because they saw them not. And with that phrase, they did not believe because they saw them not, Moroni suddenly pauses his historical narrative and launches into an inspiring discourse on faith. It is as if Moroni realizes that faith could have been the antidote to the wickedness that led to the destruction of the Jaredite nation. If only they had been able to believe before seeing, maybe they would have repented and been spared. Of course, Moroni knows that it's too late for the Jaredites, but he isn't writing to the Jaredites. He's writing to each of us, and it's not too late for us. Moroni wanted us to know that faith is the antidote to the wickedness of the world in which we live. So Moroni takes the opportunity to teach us that— By faith are all things fulfilled. Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore dispute not, because ye see not. For ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. If there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. Neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith. In other words, Moroni teaches that faith precedes the miracle. He gives multiple examples in support of this truth. When Alma and Amulek were in prison and the walls tumbled to the earth, that miracle was preceded by their faith. When Ammon and Nephi and Lehi converted thousands of Lamanites, those miracles were preceded by faith. Even the appearance of Christ among the people could not happen until after they had faith in Him. To Moroni's list, we could add another example. In Mosiah chapter 24, we read of the great faith of the people of Alma, who were at that time in bondage to the Lamanites. The Lamanites persecuted them, forced them into hard labor, and put taskmasters over them. 
So great were their afflictions, the scriptures say, that they began to cry mightily to God. But the Lamanites decreed that whosoever should be found calling upon God should be put to death. This, of course, did not stop Alma and his people, who did pour out their heart to God, and he did know the thoughts of their hearts. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their afflictions, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort. I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage. Note that the Lord didn't say when they would be delivered. In the meantime, however, he promised their burdens were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. And it came to pass that so great was their faith and their patience that the voice of the Lord came unto them again, saying, Be of good comfort, for on the morrow I will deliver you out of bondage. Note again that the Lord didn't say how he would deliver them, just that it would happen on the morrow. But that was enough for Alma and his people. They spent all night gathering their flocks together, preparing for their promised deliverance. Then in the morning, the Lord caused a deep sleep to come upon the Lamanites, yea, and all their taskmasters were in a profound sleep, and Alma and his people departed into the wilderness. It was a miracle. And it came after the people of Alma submitted cheerfully and with patience, preparing all night long without knowing how the miracle would happen, only that God had promised that it would. You see, you don't need to see the miracle before they would believe. That's faith, and faith still precedes the miracle. Now, my dear friends, examples of faith are not confined solely to the scriptures. Great faith was also demonstrated by saints early in this dispensation, and it is clearly evident among our fellow saints with whom we live day to day. Your lives are full of such faith and devotion. I wish I could talk to each of you and hear about the patterns of faith that have brought you to this point in your lives. Even though that isn't possible, you can rest assured that your Father in Heaven knows of your faith and is blessing you accordingly. I would like to suggest five patterns of faith that you can make a part of your day-to-day lives to demonstrate your faith in Jesus Christ and qualify you for the miracles that God has prepared for you. These patterns of faith include following the Lord's living prophet, attending our Sunday meetings, participating in home-centered gospel learning, paying tithes and offerings, and attending the temple. Pattern number one, following the Lord's living prophet. An inspiring example of following the prophet comes from the life of Charles Walker. Brother Walker was born in England in 1832. He was baptized as a teenager and emigrated to the United States. He came to Salt Lake City in 1855 and was married in 1861. On Sunday, October 19, 1862, at the end of Sabbath meetings, Charles heard his name read among a list of 250 others who had been called to help settle the cotton country in southwestern Utah. Brother Walker wrote in his journal that evening, Obedience is a great principle in heaven and on earth. Well, here I have worked for the last seven years through heat and cold, hunger and adverse circumstances, and at last have got me a home. 
a lot with fruit trees just beginning to bear, which look pretty. Well, I must leave it and go and do the will of my Father in heaven, who overrules all for the good of them that love him and fear him. And I pray God to give me strength to accomplish that which is required of me in an acceptable manner before him. On November 13, only 25 days after receiving his call, Charles Walker and his wife left Salt Lake City and began their journey to what we now know as St. George. In his journal, he wrote, This was the hardest trial I ever had, and had it not been for the gospel and those that were placed over me, I should never have moved a foot to go on such a trip. But I came here not to do my own will, but the will of those that are over me, and I know it will be right if I do right. Charles Walker lived a life of devotion to the Lord and His work. His actions matched his words, including these words, which are now included as hymn number 96 in our hymn book, that he wrote to describe the blessings available to those who are faithful. Dearest children, God is near you, watching o'er you day and night, and delights to own and bless you if you strive to do what's right. He will bless you, He will bless you, if you put your trust in Him. Charles Walker put his trust in God, and he was blessed. He remained faithful to his call from the prophet all his days. He lived in St. George from 1862 until his passing in 1904. Now, I am confident that within this audience are many descendants of Charles Walker. The faithfulness of Charles Walker preceded the miracle of a righteous posterity, and your faith in following the living prophets throughout your lives will have the same result. The faith to follow the living prophet still precedes the miracle. Pattern number two, attending our Sunday meetings. To illustrate this pattern of faith, I'd like to share the story of the Merchan family from the Barcelona, Spain stake. Melvin and Teresa Merchan, with their two children, Brian and Carol, moved from Ecuador to Spain in 2001. They settled in the village of Ripoll. From 2001 to 2004, they were not able to attend their Sunday meetings because they had to work on Sunday. It was not ideal, but they had no alternative. However, they continued to exercise faith. They asked their bishop to send home teachers to visit them and gave their tithing to the home teachers, who delivered it to the bishop. They received and treasured their temple recommends. Starting in 2004, the situation improved for brother and sister Merchan they were able to obtain better employment that gave them Sundays off. The nearest chapel, however, was in the city of Granollers, over 70 kilometers away, and the Merchans did not have a car. Nevertheless, they attended their Sunday meetings each Sunday. From 2004 to 2010, their Sunday schedule was something like this. 6.15 a.m., leave the apartment. 6.30 Take a train from Ripoll to Granollers, then walk from the train station and generally arrive early at the chapel. 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. attend the three hours of meetings. After the meetings, they would either eat a lunch they had brought with them or they were sometimes invited to eat with other families in the ward. Then they would walk back to the train station for a return trip to Ripoll. 
They generally arrived at their apartment around 5.15 p.m. It took approximately 11 hours each Sunday for the Merchan family to attend church. This schedule was repeated week after week after week. Earlier this summer, I asked Brother and Sister Merchan, why did you do this for almost six years? Their reply was simple. We desired that our children grow up in the Church and remain active in the Church. That was our principal goal. The rest was of lesser importance to us. Contemplate the price Brother and Sister Merchan were willing to pay to establish faith and conversion in their lives and in the lives of their children. They exercised their faith and left the miracle in the hands of the Lord. So what miracles were made possible through their faith? A branch of the Church was established in the nearby community of Vik. Brother and Sister Merchan have remained firm and steadfast in their testimonies of the Lord Jesus Christ and His restored gospel. They hold current temple recommends. Brian, their son, served a full-time mission. He attends the ward in Granoyers and has a calling in the Church and a current temple recommend. Carol, their daughter, was married in the Madrid Temple. She also lives in Granoyers and attends the ward there. She also has a current temple recommend. Now, it is not likely that you and I will be required to make an 11-hour sacrifice to attend our Sunday meetings. But we might ask ourselves what price we are willing to pay for the conversion of ourselves and our posterity. That blessing will come as we exercise the faith to partake of the sacrament weekly. The faith to attend our Sunday meetings still precedes the miracle. Pattern number three, participating in home-centered gospel learning. At the beginning of the October 2018 General Conference, President Russell M. Nelson said, The adversary is increasing his attacks on faith and upon us and our families at an exponential rate. To survive spiritually, we need counter-strategies and proactive plans. Then, as you recall, approximately 29 hours later on Sunday afternoon, he closed the conference with this promise. As you diligently work to remodel your home into a center of gospel learning, the influence of the adversary in your life and in your home will decrease. How can the attacks of the adversary be increasing exponentially and at the same time the influence of the adversary is actually decreasing? That's the promise and the blessing from the Lord's living prophet. Come follow me is the Lord's counter-strategy and proactive plan. As President Nelson taught, the new home-centered, church-supported, integrated curriculum has the potential to unleash the power of families. However, it does and will require our best efforts, and we need to follow through conscientiously and carefully to transform our home into a sanctuary of faith. In the April 2019 General Conference, Elder David A. Bednar said, Making our homes sanctuaries wherein we can stand in holy places is essential in these latter days. And as important as home-centered and church-supported learning is for our spiritual strength and protection today, it will be even more vital in the future. Studying the scriptures with the Come Follow Me resources our guide is like painting the doorposts of our home with the blood of the sacrificial lamb as the children of Israel did while in bondage. Their act of faith protected their families from the plague that took every firstborn son in Egypt. 
Our act of faith in studying the scriptures daily protects us and our families from the influence of the adversary. The faith to study the gospel in our home still precedes the miracle. Pattern number four, paying tithes and offerings. The Lord taught us in the Old Testament book of Malachi, chapter 3, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. We pay our tithing because we have faith, not because we have money. Like all acts of faith, paying tithing leads to miracles. Of this I can testify from my personal experience. The day will come, if it hasn't come already, when your faith regarding tithing will be tested. Perhaps you will have some financial challenges, and you might wonder if you can pay your tithing and also meet your other financial commitments. The adversary will tempt you to put off the payment of tithing. That will be the moment when you show the Lord and yourself who you really are. Almost 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to serve as a bishop. We had several young married couples in our ward. I recall one summer in particular when two young couples moved in. They had both been recently married in the temple, and they were both working and going to school, and they were both poor as church mice. They accepted callings to serve and strengthened our ward. During tithing settlement that year, the first of these young couples came to see me when I asked, are you full tithe payers? The couple responded, Well, this has been a difficult year between rent, food, gasoline for the car, and tuition for school. We are sorry, but it just wasn't possible to pay our tithing this year. Oh, how my heart broke for them. Earlier in the year, they had knelt at the altar in the temple. They had entered into sacred covenants and had been promised all the blessings of eternity. Now, just eight months later, they were lacking the faith to live worthy of those promised blessings. What a tragedy. We made plans to meet again after the first of the year. A week or so later, the second couple came in for tithing settlement. Again, I asked the question, are you full tithe pairs? Oh, how my heart swelled with joy at their response. Yes, Bishop, we are full tithe pairs. I looked at them and smiled. There they were, seated together, hand in hand, worthy of all the blessings that had been promised to them in the house of the Lord eight months previously. Then I thought, how did they do it? This couple also had to pay rent, buy food, buy gasoline, and pay tuition. They were still poor as church mice. When I examined their annual donation sheet, I saw that they had paid tithing nearly every week. The amounts were usually quite small, but they were consistent. I was impressed with how their humble donations added up to a magnificent miracle as the Lord provided for their family and they remained worthy of their temple blessings. 
Even now, many years later, I am in awe of their faith. The blessings promised by Malachi in the Old Testament are still received today. We can show our faith by always being current in the payment of our tithes and offerings. The faith to pay our tithes and offerings still precedes the miracle. Pattern number five, attending the temple. During the same general conference in which he warned of the exponential increase in the assaults of the adversary, President Russell M. Nelson shared an additional counter-strategy and proactive plan to protect us spending more time in the temple. Our time in the temple, he said, is crucial to our salvation and the exaltation and to that of our families. Each one of us needs the ongoing spiritual strengthening and tutoring that is possible only in the house of the Lord. Our need to be in the temple on a regular basis has never been greater. I plead with you to take a prayerful look at how you spend your time, invest time in your future and in that of your family. If you have reasonable access to a temple, I urge you to find a way to make an appointment regularly to be in the house of the Lord and then keep that appointment with exactness and joy. I promise you that the Lord will bring the miracles He knows you need as you make sacrifices to serve and worship Him and His temples. Many years ago in a state conference of the Salt Lake Valley View Stake, I heard a sister tell about her decision to attend the temple every week for the entire year. She testified of the marvelous experience it had been for her. As I listened, I realized that she had something I did not have—a spiritual witness of the temple. I desired such a witness and pondered, how could I deepen my own testimony of the temple? At that time, Anne-Marie and I had five children. We felt a desire to welcome more of our Father in Heaven's children into our family, but that didn't seem to be happening. So Anne-Marie and I talked about what we could do or what we could sacrifice to be worthy of such a blessing. We determined to make an appointment with the Lord to be in His temple every week for the next 12 months. We prayed and told the Lord of our commitment. We asked for the blessing of additional children in our family. And if we were blessed with another baby, we would be very grateful. But if that blessing was not granted, we would accept the Lord's will without murmuring. For our part— Our commitment was to be in the house of the Lord every week for the next year. That was a marvelous year for us. Often, Anne-Marie and I would go to the temple together, and at other times we went separately. Frequently, I attended the 5.45 a.m. session in the Salt Lake Temple, which made it possible to get to work on time. After several months, Anne-Marie was no longer able to attend regularly because she was pregnant and struggling with morning sickness. I think the Lord understood. But I continued to go week after week after week. I had made a commitment to the Lord, and I intended to keep my promise. I had to closely watch the Salt Lake and Jordan River temple closure schedules to attend a different temple when necessary. With effort, I was able to keep my commitment. The only challenge was the week I was at Camp Steiner in the High Uintas while serving as scoutmaster. On that occasion, I went to the temple twice the week before. In September of 1992, I completed my one-year commitment of weekly temple attendance. It was a great experience, and it changed my life. My feelings for the house of the Lord and my devotion to the work performed there deepened in a profound way. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that the Lord expects you to attend the temple every week, nor am I saying that doing so will mean you will be blessed with more children. What I am saying, however, is that miracles come only after we exercise faith. I am saying that a love for the temple and sensitivity to the Spirit there comes from being in the temple. These blessings do not come by reading about the temple or thinking about the temple. They come from being in the temple. As you exercise your faith to, in President Nelson's words, make an appointment regularly with the Lord to be in His holy house, then keep that appointment with exactness and joy, you will discover similar miracles in your lives. The faith to attend the temple still precedes the miracle. My dear brothers and sisters, I commend you for the goodness of your lives and for your devotion to the Savior and His gospel. How noble you are and how valuable is your contribution. You are and will continue to be a great strength to the Lord's work. I encourage you now to establish patterns of faith that will bring miracles and blessings to you and your posterity. Remember, following the Lord's living prophet— attending our Sunday meetings, participating in home-centered gospel learning, paying tithes and offerings, and attending the temple. I pray the Lord's blessings upon you. May you establish patterns of faith now that will precede the miracles you need in your life, because faith still precedes the miracle. Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer. His infinite atoning sacrifice makes possible our repentance and our eventual return to His presence. Joseph Smith was the prophet of this dispensation. The Book of Mormon is the evidence of the Restoration. It is true. I know it is true. President Russell M. Nelson is the Lord's prophet today. Of this I testify with great love and admiration for each of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Faith, Works, and Miracles, with thoughts from Keith B. McMullen and Mark L. Pace. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.